Namaste to all of you. Tonight, this satsang is the third and last part of our conversations, our musings about evolution, spiritual realization as outcome of evolution, and <clears throat> last but not least, this factor that is called karma, which is more like a, a grain of sand in a clockwork. <clears throat> it is more like the, the obstacle, the negative aspect in spirituality. But of course, this negative aspect is only in a childish, egocentric way, because after all, it's exactly because of friction and opposition that some things can be done and can be done properly. We have seen that in the ideas from the last two satsangs, <clears throat> and I'm not talking about the last two in a line because two weeks ago we had the space and time experience, but prior to that, the first one and the one from last week, we saw, we mused a little bit about the laws of evolution and the fact that some of you really have a sweet aspiration to evolve. Like, if you are going to be rich or not, powerful or not, live long or not, and a lot of other factors or not, there are many people who say, well, I know just that I want to evolve. I want to use this life to the maximum extent. Like, press the gas pedal, floor it completely. Like, I want to be able to evolve as much as this body allows it to happen in this life. This we call in the regular yoga understanding, Ishvara Pranidhana. Surrender or aspiration. Some yogis compare it with a magnet, with the effect of a magnet. The closer you come to a magnet, the stronger the attraction. So when you come really close, like those of you that are close, they are strongest attracted to spirituality. There is a proverb which I did not fathom for many years, like I pretended I understood it, but I had not understood it because I was lacking the practical experience, in which a great mystic, <coughs> talking about God, talking to God, says, I wouldn't have sought after you if I wouldn't have found you already. Like the person who seeks, seeks, because they have the virus in their heart. The person that seeks for the ultimate is a person who is sick of longing for the ultimate. <clears throat> Otherwise they wouldn't seek. And therefore, there are people who are so far away from the magnet that they don't really feel much the attraction of the magnet. And for some people, it's their life. 
it's their heart, it's their soul, it's their soul. <coughs> I think it was Ruskin, the British architect, poet, and mystic, who said, if you don't give to God the first place in your life, you don't give him any place. God cannot have the second place. As the Jews put it, the ancient Jewish prophets, God is a jealous God. Either he's got all your heart, or if not, you are lukewarm, you are not committed enough. Well, how many people can say, I have a family, a wife, two kids, and God is more important than my kids and than my wife? God comes first, always, whatever. My body, my health, <clears throat> my reputation, my nothing matters. God matters most. This is a person who is sick with aspiration. This is a person who is contaminated by a call which is irresistible. Not many people are blessed with this. As, we, as you are going to hear in tomorrow in the lecture of Ishvara Pranidana in the first level, <coughs> Ramakrishna complained to his first female guru that he was like that. And he said other people are interested in building houses and whatever. And it bores me to death. If I would have to live their lives, I would put a bullet in my head. It's like it's unbearable how they live their lives. And I want to become infinite. And nobody cares about it. People prefer their two-room apartments. You know, it's like they are not interested in becoming infinite and forever. I, I'm dying to become forever. And other people are dying to have a hundred thousand rupees. And it bores me to death to want a hundred thousand rupees. And it bores them to death to seek for immortality. So he said, why are we so different? Ninety-nine percent of the people around, they are different. Why am I abnormal? And his guru told him, blessed is the man upon whom befalls such a madness. Because for normal people this is a madness. But this is what Buddha had. This is what Jesus had. This is what Milarepa had. This is what Rumi had. This is what Shankaracharya had. This is what Abhinavagupta had. This is what the who's who of spirituality of this planet had. So in spirituality, this is a great qualification, which the people that don't have it, <coughs> they feel a little bit intimidated by it. <coughs> they feel a little bit scared by it. Because it's almost like a sort of fanaticism. I want to live my life like this. This is all for me. This is coming first. And thus, as I said, this spiritual evolution, this factor called spiritual evolution, for some people it's more indifferent. Like, yeah, well, yeah, I would be happy to be evolved. And other people cannot tolerate any delay in it. For some people, it's really burning in their chest. And it means a lot. Even if they have to sacrifice a lot, they would sacrifice whatever has to be sacrificed just to have that totality. 
This depends, according to the experts in spirituality and in metaphysics, this depends very much on the maturity of the soul. Like when you are ready, you are ready. And when you are not ready, there is not much that can make you ready suddenly. It's a matter of maturity. Like if you have not been, my first spiritual teacher said, the world is promises, is promising a lot. That's what the Hindus call Maya, that you think that you are going to win the roulette in Las Vegas, you know. The world is promising a lot. It's like a Fata Morgana. It's a beautiful mirage in the desert. And you think you are seeing castles in the thin air. The world is promising a lot. And is in the end is giving very little actually. The actual yield is very little. And he said that little life makes it paid dearly. Like in the end of the day, you get this much and you have paid with all your blood and with all your life for it. So in the end, it's normal to be a bit disappointed because you dreamt for a lot and it was not there. That's why my first spiritual teacher, I've read one of his credos, a paper in which he expressed at some point in his life, his decision to go into spirituality. And he said, therefore, I, from today, henceforth, I shall commit myself 100% to the divine quest. Because I don't want to be cheated by these cheap things offered by life. I want to go fully into this spiritual aspect. So... This aspiration, this will to evolve, this wish to evolve, no, like I'm studying myself and I'm seeing that I am patient, I am wise, I am loving, I have a lot of good characteristics and sometimes they are not there. Sometimes they are lacking, you know. So I'm a mixture. I'm angel and demon, right? I'm a little bit of an angel and a bit of a gorilla. As I said the other day. And what is more in me? The angel or the gorilla? And how much do I want to terminate the gorilla to go to the angel? This aspect, this desire to evolve is what makes yoga and other things be there. And I want to make it once more clear that the goal of yoga is not different from the goal of life itself. Life, if you don't do yoga, if there was never yoga on the face of this earth, and it had not been invented by anybody, and it did not exist, the goal of life, the fact that people are incarnated and they live, and they are subjected to lots of experiences, and they derive something from those experiences, it's still the same. The goal of life is to turn you into Buddhas, into enlightened beings. To make you evolve until you finish the human condition and even beyond the human condition, in superhuman conditions of existence, until you reach such high 
levels of experience, which are called by the Buddhists bodhisattva or Buddha-like levels of consciousness. So don't think that yoga is hijacking you from life and it's asking you to do something else. No. Yoga is fulfilling the goal of life. It's the same goal. Only that yoga promises sometimes to fulfill it in 12 years. Or Paramahamsa Yogananda goes as bold as saying that if you really, 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 really press it, it can fulfill it in three years. Well, three years instead of a million or 12 years instead of a million is a big shortcut. But remember, it's not doing something else. It's not that people who do not do yoga or people who are not adepts of Buddhism or people who are not joining a Christian monastery, they are going somewhere else. Christianity and other dualistic religions, they create this fallacy that if you follow Jesus 100%, you are going to go to the kingdom of heaven and you are saved, and if not, you are going to hell and you are lost forever. That is what we would call in spirituality a white lie, which is used a lot in spirituality. Because you cannot express exactly what it is. I'm going, I prepared a few quotes for you from spiritual texts. And you are going to see it's very difficult to express what this goal is. The Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, a fundamental text of Tantra, trying to be very accurate, it says, because there is a question in the text. The text starts from a question. What is this? Absolute consciousness, which you hear Swami talking about. What is it? And Vigyana Bhairava Tantra says from the beginning, whatever fairy tale you have heard told by your Christian friends or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever, whatever you have heard told about this supreme consciousness, Vigyana Bhairava says it's a lie. More precisely, it says it's like candies given by a caring mother for her child to determine it to take a bitter medicine. Like when the Ayurvedic doctor gives you a shitty, foul-smelling, foul-tasting medicine, the child refuses to take it. And then the mother starts cheating the child, telling it, if you take it, you get some candies. Take it quickly and here is some wonderful candies which you love. The point of all that trick is to take the medicine. The candies are just a collateral, which mean nothing, and their effect is zero, basically. And thus, Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, which is a very, very serious text of meditation and metaphysics, basically says, if somebody told you that you are going to go to God, and it's going to be music forever, it's bullshit. It's not, you cannot define God by music. It's just candies. It's just something which makes you say, oh, is that true? Then I think I want to go to God. It's a lure. It's a way of luring you in towards spirituality. It doesn't mean it's true. And actually, Vigyana Bhairava says, because you cannot express it, and therefore whatever everybody is trying to tell you, that God is good and you'll be in paradise. It's not even true. In Mahabharata, the great Indian epic, this is expressed in a crazy way. 
they are five, the heroes are five brothers who are the good guys. And they fight a holy war against the 100 brothers who are the bad guys. And they are supported by Krishna, who is no less than an avatar. Krishna is God himself, like Jesus, born on earth to change history. But before Jesus, 2000 years before Jesus. He's another avatar at another historical time of the earth. And so they are supported by the incarnation of God. Krishna, who is the avatar of Vishnu himself. And in the end, Yudhishthira, the older of the brothers, he finds a ladder to paradise, and he climbs to paradise, and there he finds the hundred bad guys drinking in paradise and be feasting. And he says, it's incredible who forgave you, who forgave your many sins. How come that you guys are in paradise? You are the bad guys. We beat the shit out of you. You are like the devil in the Bible, you know. You, have, you should be locked in chains and thrown in the outer darkness. You know, it's like, it sounds very weird that you who are the bad guys are in paradise. And then he says, but I don't see my mother and my brothers. And uh, the bad guys who are in paradise, they say, you don't want to know. And he says, well, actually I do. And then they send him someplace and it's a dark foul, bad smelling, horrible, total darkness, pitch black, dark dungeon, and he hears wailing. And he hears his mom and brothers wailing in the dark, like they are in hell. And he goes bananas, you know, he says it's not possible. It's like it makes no sense, there is no justice in this universe. We did the will of God, we were the good guys, we did what was asked of us. And the bad guys are enjoying themselves after death. And my family is in hell. And then he hears, because it's all a theater, it's all a cosmic play. And he hears the voice of Dharma. Dharma means the the will of God, the order of the universe. It's the highest force. He hears the voice of Dharma, who is his father. He is the son of Dharma, Yudhishthira. And his father talks to him. He can hear his voice although he is immaterial. And he hears the voice of Dharma, which says, and thus, O Yudhishthira, you have eliminated the last illusion which was plaguing your mind. Like you still live in a dream that the good guys go to paradise and the bad guys go to hell. It's good when it is written in the Bible. It gives a motivation, like, oh my God, I don't want to go to hell, because hell is horrible. And it's good. It creates the fear of God and it makes people virtuous, makes people moral, ethical, out of the fear of hell. It's a good fear. It's good to be afraid of hell up till a point because it prevents you from killing, raping, stealing, maiming and doing things because you have this fear of the consequences. But this duality, which is put there and which is good, is not real. That's not the cosmic consciousness. Cosmic consciousness is not that good people go to paradise and bad people go to hell. That's kindergarten. It's a very, that's a candy. It's a candy given by a mother to a child who doesn't want to take the the medicine. And that is why it is important to understand 
how are these goals, what is really happening with this evolution, because we cannot define properly some things which are way beyond the human capacity of understanding. Almost every month or every season, some people ask two or three times, why does the existence exist? Why does the manifestation exist? Why did God push seven billion of us and gazillion of other souls, which are animals or superhumans or trees or all these myriads of souls which exist, why are they pushed in this wheel? Like to whom does it serve that spirit is created? It is attached to atoms and minerals and plants and vegetables and vegetables and animals and humans and superhumans and deities and bodhisattvas and Buddhas. And why does the spirit make this big circle and to whom does it serve? Because until further notice, most of you can see just 10 meters to the left and 10 meters to the right. And as you look 10 meters to the left and to the right, you see a lot of misery. You see a lot of frustration. You are endowed with an ego, and that ego up till a point serves you. Because if you don't have an ego, you are a jellyfish and everybody is trampling on you. But if you have too much ego then you become forbidden. You forfeit your spirituality and you become a monster. So, ego is a little bit good and a lot of it is bad. So, should we have, like, you know, the world is characterized by ego. Most people around us, they teach us to be competitive, to mind our own business, to mind our own personal interest. Not, it's like, I'm looking 10 meters to the left, 10 meters to the right, especially now in Kali Yuga, I sometimes see an existence which is horrible, pathetic, sad, depressive. Not always. No, I'm having a sexual orgasm and for three hours I'm straight as rain. Or I'm watching a beautiful sunset and for six hours I forget about the miseries of existence. But there is a text written by Shivananda very painful. I'm, I'm going to quote it in my Awakening of the Spirit workshop. I, that's always when I come with it. In the August, in the month of August. Because it belongs there to what the process which we do. And Swami Shivananda called it miserable mundane existence. And it's a whiplash. It's a whip crack for everybody who says, Oh, but mundane life, like daily life, is okay. Swami Shivananda writes 10 pages which make you cry. They make you get goosebumps, you know, because he, he's like surgeon cutting raw flesh, you know. He's cutting through the whole bullshit and he writes something so painful and so true. Like Buddha, when Buddha saw dead people, sick people, old people, he couldn't bear it anymore. He said, I also am going to get sick and old and die and it's like life leads to pain. There is pain in the human life. You know, it's like, and what if we don't want this pain? Swami Shivananda, he writes the same. He writes miserable, mundane existence. You know, and it's really shocking, that paragraph, which he wrote. And <clears throat> that's why I'm saying that in 
spirituality, no? sometimes people are very aware of this process, and they say, you know, I'm looking at the left, I'm looking at the right, and life is sometimes good. Like Swami Shivananda is not a pessimist. He, he had a very buoyant temperament. He was generally a positive person. But he says, you know, eating, sleeping, procreating. Like that's what most people do. Eat, sleep, procreate. A little laughter and a lot of tears. Like there is not even enough laughter for the amount of tears, you know. You just go to the dentist. You know, one of your teeth got broken, you know. It's tears, it's not fun. You would have avoided that. If you would have been built by a benevolent God, you wouldn't have had decadent teeth. Why do we have teeth that loosen up and break and get holes in it? And it's like, why is life made like this? Why haven't we been born with diamond teeth that never break? So we didn't have this pain. Why does this body have so many flaws like this, which inevitably, sooner or later, they lead to pain? So Swami Shivananda doesn't say that you are not having fun from time to time. But he says, a little laughter and a lot of tears. And then he asks a big question. He says, is that all there is to life? That's all. Eating, sleeping, procreating, a little laughter and a lot of tears. Like I have some successes. I also had a cancer which gave me a lot of tears. You know, it's like, and in the end when I draw the line, it's like, what did I get from this life? Yes, I can philosophically be happy because I had 80 years of experiences and I got some evolution. But until when? Until when? Evolution, evolution, every life, then I'm going to be born again. I'm going to be a child, confused, persecuted by the family, a teenager, not finding my way, sexually frustrated, doing stupid things, taking wrong decisions, having to build a career, trying to make a family, seeing people dying around me, dear people dying around me, falling ill, it's like, and then dying again. And then in the end I'm saying, I dreamt about a lot and I got about this much. And I had to sell my soul, you know. I had to put all my soul into it for all my life. I had to sell my soul to this process called life. And in the end, I got just a little bit. And there was a, you know, I ate, I slept, I procreated. I had some laughter. I had a lot of tears as well. It's like, for some people, this image of life is very depressive. It's like if that's all you can hope to get, and worse, you are going to get it thousands of times in a row. You are not going to be a human being just in the 21st century. You are going to be a human being in the 24th century as well. No, It's like besides the fact that I may have a sort of a pathological curiosity, like I want to see how mobile telephones will be in the 23rd century. You know, It's like, okay, that's just an intellectual curiosity. But is my life going to be more laughter and less tears? It's like, am I going to get more out of it? And that's why <clears throat> when we look around, people are asking, like, what's the reason of this? You know? And in India they give, as I said in one speech recently, they even give stupid answers. They say, it's Lila, God is playing. But if God is playing and life is such a misery... Like Shivananda writes on ten pages describing a panorama of how miserable life can be. 
then this game, this lila, makes no sense. It's a very cruel, it's a sadistic, painful game. And it's true that maybe some people slowly, slowly become Buddhas. But very slowly, too slowly, and meanwhile, so much agony, so much pain. No, think about how people die. You know? Every time when a human being dies, 99%, 99 people out of 100, they die horribly. They shit themselves. They vomit. They piss. They are in agony. They are afraid. They are cursing God. They are, don't know about something. They beg for forgiveness. They do, it's like, even death. Why are people so afraid of death? Because when you look at a hundred people dying, 99 die painfully. They die with a colema bag inserted on their large intestine. It's like, you know, it's like there's nothing decent and beautiful. Very few people would put their legs in the lotus pose, go in ecstasy, like Buddha, lie down on his right ear and say, I'm going in the search of the truth. You know, it's like, I'm out of this. Peacefully, consciously, and even with a big smile on their lips, like the whole thing is a joke, the whole thing is a game, the whole thing is blissful and wonderful. And that's why I'm, I'm saying that um, <coughs> human beings inquire a lot on this meaning of the whole thing, and we say that the meaning is evolution, but it doesn't fully answer. No, like I said, what was before, like now you are somewhere in the middle. Allegedly, and I cannot demonstrate this scientifically, that's just metaphysics, what I'm telling you now, take it or leave it. But according to metaphysics, you have been something before. Before, I mean a hundred years before, and a hundred thousand years before, and even a hundred million years before, you were something. And you have a beginning. There is a beginning. You come from something, from somewhere. And, according to metaphysics, there is an end. There is an after. After being this, and even after finishing being human, there is something great, greater than human. And it's interesting that what was before and what lies after, the Buddhist presented like a circle. Like when your spirit was clean and was attached to an atom or to a mineral, you are almost like a Buddha in meditation. You are almost like the Satori of the Zen masters. Pure consciousness, vision, witness. No mind, no emotion, no additions to it. And then you become a plant, a tree, and you start having fear and emotions like trees have, and all the plants have. And then you become an animal and you start having instincts and even a primitive psychology. And then you become a human being and you start having a rational intellect and more developed emotions, more complex and so on. And you are in the middle of something, so you came from a peace, from a simplicity, and then as a human being, if you decide to go into a Buddhist monastery and meditate until you reach nirvana, this nirvana is called by Buddha an extinction. That it's like a candle that you extinguish. 
that you are burning with desire and you think you are going to go to Las Vegas and win a lot of money in blackjack because you've got a system and a trick and you think you are going to build castles in Spain and live in a magic land and eventually all these were just dreams and maya you know and when you go and do buddhist meditation all these desires and all these wild dreams they are extinguished and that's why nirvana gives this almost frightening image that enlightenment is almost like a psychological death like a psychomental death because after it you will become totally disinterested your detachment will be taken to such a level that you won't give a rat's ass on anything even if your father and mother or sister and brother or wife and children die you're just not going to care a buddha doesn't think that it's bad that his children have died because everybody dies as well and that many people will think like this is almost inhuman it's almost like who can be like this who can rise to such a level and if you rise to such a level you become almost like the mineral like the stone that you were like all you can do is witness and of course smile like the buddha and what's the difference between an atom and the buddha like the beginning and the end are like a circle you start from simplicity you become very complicated as a human being and then as we make you do yoga and meditation you start going again into simplicity you start giving up all these snares of the ego all these complications of the human nature and start going into things which are simple which are not composite as milarepa said and that's why it's interesting that the finality the grand finale is like something which was in the beginning in the beginning the bible tells us that adam and eve were immortal and happy and actually the problem is not that they started bumping pelvises having sex because before that actually the origin of that was something else that they ate from the fruit of a tree and that tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like adam and eve had no knowledge that there was something which was good and that there was something which was evil they were living in non-duality the original consciousness symbolized by adam and eve it's a consciousness which has no concept of good and evil in the moment when they ate from that symbolic apple they started saying wait a second this is good and this is evil this creates complications it makes the human mind become judgmental attached rejecting some things preferring and rejecting and that creates the whole drama if you wouldn't have a concept of good and evil you wouldn't be complicated you would be simple so actually the original man and the original woman they are beyond good and evil good and evil understanding things as good and evil debased them made them become mortal and made them chased out of the garden of paradise 
So in a certain way, we are trying to get back to this garden of paradise. Humanity has a paradise which is lost, like the famous paradigm of that novel which talks about Shambhala, John Milton, who is speaking about paradise lost, Shangri-La. The fact that there is a paradise and it's terrible to lose it. And that we are constantly looking for turning back to paradise. Turning back to paradise, we have to forget that there is good and evil. We have to go beyond good and evil. The spirit, the pure spirit, is beyond good and evil. And thus, it's very interesting that we are having this simplicity. We are having this return to the origins. Even Shakti, Kundalini, is in Muladhara Chakra and she is the reflection of Shiva in Sahasrara. The perineum in yoga is called Shivani Nadi. Shivani. But Shiva is here. Why is the perineum called Shivani Nadi? Why the most important energy of the human being, the one that can rise your level of consciousness and make you into Buddhas, is in Muladhara. Muladhara chakra is the most simple of all the chakras. And it has four spokes, which are called Yogananda, Sahajananda, Virananda, and whatever others. I forgot all the Sanskrit names in uh, speed like now because I didn't write them down. And basically the four spokes of Muladhara Chakra which is considered to be the lowest of the chakras are all of them called something Ananda. Ananda is the Sanskrit word which means bliss. So there are four spokes in Muladhara which are four forms of bliss. So Muladhara contains in it bliss. Why? Because Muladhara is Shakti, and Shakti is the wife of Shiva, and she is bliss. And therefore the high is low, and the low is high. The lowest, which is Kundalini, moves up your spine and makes love to Shiva in Sahasrara, and thus the human being is enlightened. Therefore, we always have this image that when you go to the end of the circle... You are like coming close to the beginning. There is a wonderful book written by Professor Mircea Eliade in studies on spiritual anthropology, which is called The Myth of the Eternal Return. Every religion, every spirituality has this myth that you return home. That spirituality is like coming home. The very word religion in Latin comes from the words re-ligo. Ligo means to tie with a rope. And re-ligo means to reconnect, to re-tie. Which means you were connected with God, now you are lost like the prodigal son, and you have to come back home. Re-ligo religion reconnects you. It's not something new. It's something which you had already. That's why that mystic said, I wouldn't look for you if I wouldn't have found you already. Mircea Eliade, he said, the religious sentiment is inborn in the human being, is inbuilt. Even people who claim that they are atheistic, they are 
still having that. I remember once a semi-tragic thing that a, a airplane pilot, a military jet pilot, crashed in the city where I was living as a teenager, as a young man. And there was a plane crash and two people crashed. And the first of them, who was, I think, the younger one, he just tried to catapult himself. And he died because it didn't succeed from a low height. And the second guy, he desperately tried to land, impossibly, like you cannot land a pencil, a flying pencil, a supersonic jet. You cannot land it just like this. It, it requires ultra-special conditions. And this guy tried to crash land it, and miraculously he managed to land it, and he escaped alive. He just had a little damage in the spine, and three months later, knowing that I did chiropractic of a yoga type, his wife called me at his apartment to crack his spine and to put his vertebras back, and his damage was solved. Like, he got nothing. And the thing which endeared this man to me, and why I went to help him, I'm not saying that otherwise I wouldn't, but it motivated me more, was that the radio recordings, in the moment when this, the other guy catapulted and this guy was about to land his jet, although he was a communist military officer, therefore brainwashed with atheism all over, he started shouting, praying to God. He simply said, God, I have two children. Don't leave them without a parent. Please, 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 let me live. And he landed miraculously. Even an atheist military officer has the religious sentiment inbuilt somewhere in a corner of the brain. As much as we say that it isn't, it is there. And that's why, that's because we have it. The sacred is in us. Our spirit comes from the ocean, from the mother ocean. And we just go back to that mother ocean. That's why we have the nostalgia. That's why we have the longing. Because we know we have been there. We have been there in the beginnings in a very simplified way. But we can get back there. This is the myth of the eternal return. That we return to the origins. We are always the spiritual realization is not something else. It's just reconnecting ourselves and becoming ourselves, but after taking a dip in the manifestation. This taking a dip, many people consider it useless. They say, I was with God, then they followed a hundred million years of shit, and then I am going to God again. Couldn't we cut those 100 million years of shit and just have only the beginning and the end of this story? No. Because the contents of this story means everything. That's exactly the meaning. But this meaning of evolution is very difficult to fathom with a limited mind. And why was it necessary that myriads of souls, including you in this room, are part of this carousel? Like what sort of plan... Does this cosmic consciousness that you can call God or Allah or Shiva consciousness or what plan does it have? Why, why is this of any relevance? What consequence does this have in the big picture? Where does it lead? Does it have any usefulness? Because we humans, 
we look upon usefulness in a very pragmatic and low way. And in a very pragmatic and low way, we don't see this usefulness. It's like, oh yeah, sure, what's the use of all this and so on. Because we expect some immediate satisfaction. We expect some immediate fulfillment of some desires, of some goals. <clears throat> and that's why I would like tonight in the minutes which are left to look a little bit at the spiritual realization first because we spoke about evolution and evolution and evolution but there is a carrot in front. There is a light in the end of the tunnel. And some people want that carrot so much that they are ready to do eight hours of yoga per day. Some people are not. And it makes no difference. It makes only difference in the length of the process and the way it's going to happen. But life, life, the universal life, the wheel of life and yoga have the same purpose. Yoga is not trying to do something else. And that's why let's look at this goal this is the spiritual part of yoga. This is the fourth part of yoga. I'm not talking about now that yoga can generate health, which it can. At least for a while, because everybody dies sooner or later. So I hope you don't think that yoga generates health for the next 15,000 years. You will live 100 years and then one day you will lie down, put your hands on the chest and still pass away because your body is still decaying unless you reach to do yoga at levels which are supernatural and miraculous, but as long as you live by the laws of nature, things are linear there. So, of course, yoga gives health and a lot of other physical benefits. Yoga makes your daily life be cool. You know the four pillars which I mention constantly. Yoga can make you open your third eye and see people's auras or other things. And all these can be very cool, very useful, very nice, and many, many other things like this. And, of course, always the fourth pillar of yoga is about finding yourself. It's about getting back to this, to those origins. These, uh, so what I'm telling now, it refers to the people who do yoga because of this spiritual perspective, because of this spiritual dream. And um, if we compare it and try to see what it is in different traditions, in Buddhism it's called nirvana, as I said, extinction of desires. Like if you are a Buddha, you are sitting like this, you have a seraphic smile on your lips. And people come and tap you on the shoulder and you say, do you want an apple? And the answer is, no. A Buddha doesn't desire even an apple. Nothing. I don't desire anything. I'm perfect as I am. <clears throat> I am in a contemplative, blissful state. That's why it's called nirvana, extinction of desire. Reaching to a state which is sufficient unto itself. Like you don't require a sexual partner, you don't require people to be around you so you are not lonely anymore, you don't require fame, glory, comfort, apples, sunsets, nothing. You are happy already. All the sunsets and all the apples have been swallowed by your consciousness already and you have them. And there is no place to go. It's just eternity in bliss. There are many paths of extinguishing, many ways of extinguishing desire according to Buddhism. For example, there exists a tantric Buddhism in Tibet, the Vajrayana Buddhism, 
which is very different from what you see in a monastery like the neighboring monastery here, which is not a tantric monastery, it's a Theravada Buddhist-style monastery, which is ascetic. Actually, many ascetic yogis from India, because of the classical yoga of Patanjali and because of the Vedanta philosophy, they share this view of desires. Buddha, in a very discreet way, has left a very big mark on the Indian spirituality. Indians, Indian yogis who were born 500 years later than Buddha or 1,000 years later than Buddha, even 1,500 years later than Buddha, they talk about this ideal of nirvana very gloriously. They are not tantric yogis, but still they talk about, and precisely because of that, they praise like, they, they don't practice Buddhism, those yogis. They are not Buddhist, they are Hindu citizens. But the ideal of Buddha remains that there is a way of extinguishing desire, achieving eternal peace, accompanied. Of course, in Buddhism there are other images such as enlightenment. The very name Buddha means the enlightened one. And enlightenment, Buddha, in Indian astrology, is the name of the planet Mercury, which is the planet of knowledge, transmission of information, computers, intellectuals, media, like people that are very intellectual, very intelligent, they would be called Buddha. It's the influence of Mercury. So, Bauda or Buddha means to be enlightened, but it means to be enlightened like to know the secret of creation, like Buddha, or it also means enlightened, like in English. You know, you say, enlighten me. But enlighten me doesn't mean touch me like Krishna on the third eye and put me in samadhi. In common English, enlighten me means give me all the information which is relevant. No, like give me knowledge. So actually, Buddhism expresses nirvana also in a matter of enlightenment, which means knowledge. Buddha never spoke about love in the way Jesus did. Not because what Jesus said is not true, but what Buddha said is not true. It's the same mountain. But when you climb the Jungfrau in Switzerland, there is a north face to it, the Eigerwand. No? And that kills a lot of people. That's the famous north face from where there is the travel company, the company that creates sports, where called the North Face. That North Face is referred. The North Face of the Eye, called the Eigervan, which is one of the most deadly vertical faces of a mountain in the world. Almost impossible to climb. And you can climb the, that mountain by the North Face, but if you go by the South Face, it's completely different. It's the same mountain. And Buddha sees it from one face, and he says the source of human suffering is ignorance, and therefore the solution is knowledge. If you, Buddha, the solution is enlightenment. Like to know, which means to really know. Not to read a book and to say, oh, now I know. That's not knowledge. That's a superficial, livresque, intellectual thing. You haven't absorbed it. You haven't lived it out. The actual Buddha, the actual enlightenment, is the one which has become part of your body, mind, existence. So, 
The Buddhists themselves, besides nirvana, defining this state as no desire, they define it as enlightenment, like all knowledge, true knowledge. They define it as awakening, like you are asleep, you are a zombie, and this life which you live is asleep. And if you live like Buddha, then you are awake. Awakening. And in Japanese Buddhist, Satori, in Zen, a vision, the direct vision, like open your eyes and don't say this is a statue. Let it just be a statue. Don't label it. It is what it is. Everything is what it is. But your mind is so fast that all the time your mind says, ah, these are a group of my disciples who are listening to my ramblings tonight. Ah, these are some lights which are shining in my eyes and so on. My mind constantly to feel safe outlines things and makes me define what is what. But in the first second, if I would be asleep and somebody would fire a cracker and I'll just pop, in the first second I don't know. I didn't have time to take all my bearings. My mind is fresh. And I'm just seeing. And what is, is, but my mind didn't have the time to start weaving and start embroidering and putting names on it and saying these this lamps are inorganic and my pupils are alive and therefore they are made of... Like, my mind establishes connections, relationships. What is, this is bigger than this, this is more important than this, this is further away than this. No, my mind constantly weaves a web of crazy thoughts, millions and millions of thoughts by which I evaluate reality. Satori in Zen is a fresh vision, like somebody who opens their eyes for the first time and stays in that first vision. And the mind doesn't move, doesn't weave. It's frozen, it's like you are stupid. The Kashmirians compare it, the yogis from Kashmir, they compare it with that paradoxical state, which most people hate and avoid, when you can't remember a word. And you want to say a word, and it's like, uh, 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 and you know it, it's on the tip of your tongue. The word is right there, and you can't say it. If you would stop trying to say the word, and just close your eyes, and stay. People say, he's weird, you're in the middle of a sentence, you said something, and now you stopped and closed your eyes. <laughs> I don't give a rat's ass of what you think that I'm weird. I'm just about to discover the truth. The truth is exactly in staying at that point no, and not letting the mind weave. So, a vision. No, this points at the aspects of meaning of life. If there is enlightenment, if there is vision, if there is awakening. And I could give you so many examples. I'm trying to keep it brief so I get to the, some quotes which I prepared for you. In trying to understand why this state is desirable. Because in yoga we often speak about the eight stages of yoga and that the last stage is samadhi and it's so cool. And if you happen to be spiritually interested then come to samadhi, you know, because it's a cool thing. And we talk very often about the spiritual parts of yoga and the spiritual parts of yoga are like this and like this and like this and you activate your crown chakra. And of course intuitively because this is a truth which is not my truth. It is our truth. It is the truth of existence. It's the truth of Shiva. 
It's an archetypal thing. I can only tell you what is given to me. And I didn't invent yoga. I am an unworthy transmitter of yoga at the 50th generation of yogis along the lineages of yoga. After thousands of years of yoga. I am a poor westerner who teaches yoga being born in Kali Yuga. And when I was two days old, they vaccined me anti-polio and anti, you know. It's like I'm a victim of the Kali Yuga as much as you are. I have been educated in a school which taught me atheism and things like this. I have been having all the dramas and traumas of life. You know, it's like I'm grown in Kali Yuga just as you are grown up in Kali Yuga. No, we, we come from the same place. And yet, yoga is pure. The spirituality comes from beyond the sense. That's why they say that the yoga texts are written by Shiva. Of course they are not written by Shiva, textually speaking. Of course a man wrote. But that man was in contact with this cosmic consciousness. And he said, it's not me. It's the immemorial. It's the eternal which writes this. That's why they say that the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. Of course modern anthropologists and scholars, they ridicule and that's why they put down Christianity and all this, because they bullshit. It's written by some Hebrew-Palestinian scholars in this century and that century. Look at the language, look at mistakes of orthography, look at this. Because of course it's written, literally speaking, it's written by some human beings. But where did those human beings get it from when they put it down on paper? No, That's why spirituality, this supreme consciousness which brings us home is for all of us there. And that's why, first of all, I'm trying to show to you why, what this state of spiritual realization, either you call it arousing of Sahasrara, or who am I, or whatever, how this state of consciousness is manifested in different spiritual meridians, to understand that different people, like Buddha, was definitely a person with a big Ajna Chakra, and he had a lot of intellectual power, and he had the power to synthesize things, to get to boil them down, to say the four noble truths, the eight things to be done. You know, like, aren't there nine things to be done? No, Buddha says the eight things to be done. There are not nine. There are not seven. There are eight. Like the Jewish prophets, like Moses. The Ten Commandments. Aren't there eleven? Couldn't we just reduce them to eight? There are the Ten Commandments. So it's, that's why I'm saying, there you see a lot of Ajna. In Moses, in Buddha, you see a lot of mentalizing the things, that things are about a knowledge and the precision. But others, for example, like in the well-known case of Jesus, they have expressed it in other ways. And it doesn't mean they were less right. It means they were looking at a different face of the mountain. They were not climbing the north face, they were climbing the south face or the west face. And then the mountain looked different. There was something else to climb that mountain. And this gives us different views of what is awaiting for us. Because ultimately, what you need to know in attending a yoga school like this, after being in a yoga school like this for six months, for a year, for more, what you need to know is if you really want to press the gas pedal or not. 
because of course it takes some time and some energy and instead of just buying a container full of silver and taking it to Holland and selling it at full moon markets or at rock concerts and therefore making an import-export business, you are staying here and standing on your head. In this time you could have bought silver in Bangkok and sold it in Amsterdam, you know. You could as well have done that. So why should you choose standing on your head and not going and buying? And Of course you can do both, some people do both, but I'm just taking it in black and white like if you had a choice. <clears throat> That's why I'm tonight when I conclude this thing about evolution and where we go, who we are, I'm uh, thinking very much about the, what is in the end of the tunnel so that people looking at the different facets of it, they would say, Swami said about five things tonight and none of them rang my bell. Like, no, it's, it's not really worth it. I prefer to sell silver. It's, it's more satisfactory for me. Don't think it's impossible. If you are here... There is a fair chance that many of you will not go for the silver business. Not, again, not because I have something against silver business per se. I'm giving it as an example. But out there in the world out there, 999 people out of 1,000 would sell the silver. They don't care about that light in the end of the tunnel. It doesn't attract them. It doesn't ring a bell either because they don't believe in it or it sounds like it's too far away, or it sounds like it may be, maybe it's bullshit and it's just selling dreams or something, but for a reason or another they don't click. They don't get electrified on it. That's why yoga says that some people are prepared, some people are not really prepared. In Christianity, realization, this state, the light in the end of the tunnel, means saintliness. It's called divinization of man. That man or women can become divine. If you pray 12 hours per day, if you stand in the desert 15 hours per day like this, until fire starts coming out of your hands and you become like a pillar of light, in 10 years you will not be a Tom, Dick and Harry anymore. A person who does that 10 years is becoming a superhuman. It's becoming something else. It's, you evolve beyond humanity. And this is called divinization of man. In the beginning, people spending a lot of time in prayer and other contemplative practices, they are called improved human beings. And then you get so improved that you are not only improved, you are divinized. Christianity even describes two stages of salvation and perfection. Salvation means Partial evolution up till a stage which is good enough for today, for this life. And perfection means Buddhahood. It means acquiring everything. And this is formulated in terms like reaching eternal life, like reaching the kingdom of God, reaching grace, reaching communion, like the Latins called it unio mystica, unio mystica. The union, the mystical union between your soul and God by prayer, becoming one, in ecstasy. And this vision in Christianity, it emphasizes love, power, purity, knowledge, 
influence another human. Like if you will be a saint according to Christian ideals, you will be close to God. You will be one with God. Your prayers will have power. For example, Saint Teresa of Avila, a great 16th century Spanish Roman Catholic saint, she said that every night in her sleep she had lucid dreams and she was descending to the gates of hell and with her prayers she was pulling souls out of hell. Every night. Like she prayed hours to get people to get rid of hell. That's a power. It's an influence. It means I'm so close to God that I can ask for favor. Oh God, have mercy of all these souls that are in hell right now and let me take a few of them out. Whoever you want, however you want, please, 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 oh God, let me save a couple of them. Hey, you are powerful. You are not every Tom, Dick and Harry when you can do that. Again, that, but that doesn't insist like the Buddha doesn't say, well, and I also could go to hell and say, he doesn't care. He doesn't look at that side of the mountain. But Teresa of Avila looks at another side of the mountain and says, when I reach that, I obtain divine influence. My prayer became powerful. I am praying for you not to have cancer. And lo, your cancer is healed. That's the prayer of a great saint. So, another aspect of the spiritual realization is emphasized, which uh, neglects some metaphysical accomplishments, but it looks very much at many human ideals, which are still fulfilled. I'm going to show you a tantric synthesis from, in the end of this, in a few minutes, uh, from the Shiva Sutra. The Hindu view about spiritual realization is about freedom. Because for them the spiritual realization is called moksha or mukti, mukta, liberation. They don't call it enlightenment. They call it liberation. Like we are not free. We are prisoners. We do not really choose. We are the prisoners of our karma. Constantly we pamper our ego. Oh yeah, well I want to do this. I don't like to do this. I was like, what life are you living? You are just living a life where you listen to your ego. Your ego says, I like this, I don't like that. If you would be a bit more Spartan, you go in a Buddhist monastery, you go in a Christian monastery, you go in a cave in Tibet, you don't do what you like. It's finished with what I like and I don't like. What I like and what I don't like is dead. You don't pamper your likes and dislikes. You don't live your life for your likes and dislikes. You live your life for what you know that has to be done what your aspiration is, and like and dislike becomes collateral. No? Tibetans have a way of doing retreats of three years in which the toughest of them, the people who do that to the fullest, they live in a sandbox. They have a sandbox half the size of this bed of mine. That sandbox is not big enough to lie down. It's just big enough to stay like this. Imagine a frame around this full of sand, and I'm sitting on it. And they are supposed to sit in that one for three years, three months, three weeks, and three days. You don't, have the, you don't lie down, basically. You sleep like this. You don't get out of the sandbox. That's not about what you like and what you don't like anymore. It's about something else. You don't live your life to just satisfy yourself and your likes and dislikes. 
<clears throat> that's why I say you have to be motivated. If you are not motivated, you will not subject yourself to such things. And thus, the Indian view, the Hindu view, is that we go against this ego pampering where we choose wrong and when where. And this is where karma comes in, the famous story about karma. They call this liberation as a liberation from karma. And the liberation from the, what the Kashmirians call the kanchukas, the armors which force us, like time is one of the kanchukas. Time is forcing you forward, 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 forward. What if you could for a second stop time? Tell to Kali, shut up. Stop, freeze. Then what's happening? Nothing. Nothing more. There is no tomorrow. But if there is no tomorrow, then what is the eternal today? What's now? What's this eternal present moment which is there? So thus, the Hindus insisted very much on this aspect of liberation. That there is karma, and as long as you have a little bit of karma, good or bad, that karma pushes you. That karma is like you would live your life, imagine that this is your room in your apartment, Imagine that this is your house, that this is your village, and your village goes like this. What do you think will happen? In no time, the whole village and everything will be down here. Because it's a slope. And it, it, this is how karma is. It means the karma sends you here. It doesn't mean you are obliged to go here. But 999 times out of a thousand you will end here because you live on a slope and everything tends to flow that way. Karma is not obliging you. Karma is like instead of putting a slope, imagine that there is a huge wind, a hurricane, which blows from here. 200 kilometers per hour winds from left to right. What do you think will happen? In half an hour everything will be jammed here because of the wind. That is karma. Karma is like there is a tendency for things to go somewhere. Like if you have the karma to break your leg, or worse, to lose your leg, there is a crazy force in your life which is pushing you to make choices in which you tumble stupidly and unwittingly towards the point where you get an accident and you lose your leg. It's karma. It doesn't mean that you have to lose your leg. But it means that very probably you will, because you don't pay attention. If you pay attention, you start walking like this. And say, fucking hill slide. You know, it's like, it's why I don't want down there, I want here. You can fight with the karma. But you have to stop going on the line of minimal resistance. You cannot take the, the path, which is wide, and easy. You have to take the path less trodden upon. You have to take the difficult path to fight with karma. Because easy, the easy thing is just to fulfill the tendency of karma. Just to roll down slope and find yourself where karma wanted you from the beginning. This force which is called karma and which is the resultant of our previous actions, according to the Hindu yogis, is they looked upon it because they said, what what stops our freedom? What makes that, you know, 
I didn't want to have children and I found myself procreating and now I have children. It's not a crime to have children, but when I was 20 years old, I had decided not to have children because I thought I have something more important to do. I want, like Albert Einstein, to spend my life in a laboratory and discover laws of physics. I don't have time to raise kids. There are other people who want to have three, four, five, ten. Good for them. You know, it's like I'm not the one who wants to have kids. I want to do something else with my life. And then 30 years later, I find myself having two lovely kids. Of course, I'm not hating them. I mean, I'm loving them. They are my kids. I have parental feelings. But how on earth did life cheat me and hypnotize me that when I was 20, I said no. And now I find myself that something opposite has happened. That's what the Hindus call karma. That karma is a sort of a hypnotic force which tends, and eventually you don't know how, but if you didn't pay constant attention, constant attention, constant attention, the karma has fooled you around and you are there where it was predicted that you will be. And that's why for Hindus, the spirituality is being free from karma, not having a predestined karma anymore, being free from these fetters. And that's why in Hinduism, this liberation is like a prison break. That's why I compared it with a prison break. How does Maya keep you prisoner? Maya keeps you prisoner through the karma, because you have some karma, and willy-nilly, you incarnate, you find yourself born out of two parents, and now you have a physical body, and you have to live it out. Like, okay, here is another life. I'm born again. No? And some people even say, I wish I was not born. I don't know why I was born. No? It's like there is a, an expression of a fundamental truth there. And um, in the Tantric Hinduism, there are versions. This is a very ascetic view of it. In the Tantric Hinduism, it's more about here and now. Like it doesn't matter all this game about karma, because what matters is the satori, the spiritual vision in the here and now. Great yogis have outlined degrees of liberation, and this is exactly something which is explained in detail in our metaphysical workshop. How does the evolution of the human being go in the big picture, after death, what are the stages, what can you expect, and so on. The Buddhists describe five degrees of siddhas, ten degrees of bodhisattvas. You know, like there are many, many graduations in which it's not just black and white, unenlightened and enlightened, but it's like close to it, 90% enlightened, 80% enlightened, and stuff like this. And um, this spiritual realization moves into the place which the Kashmirians and others call the Bhava Samadhi, when it's not just a state of consciousness, but it's a way of existing in the world with the eyes open, with the breath going on, like Jesus walking, speaking, teaching, acting, and at the same time sharing this ultimate state of consciousness. And... I would like to give you a few quotes to conclude this from a fundamental text of Kashmirian tantric yogic spirituality from the Kashmirian Shaivas, which is talking 
a few excerpts from the chapter 1 and chapter 3 of the Shiva Sutra, which is their seminal text, their original text, which describe in a few ways, in a Shaiva ways, describes a little bit the glory of the consciousness when it is embodied in a human being. Of course, Kashmiri Shaivism has the ultimate, like Kashmiri and Shaivists speak about a yogi who is like Jesus. They speak about somebody who has identified to the God qualities completely. Which is something which is very, 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 very rare in the history of humanity. Because not all the yogis have reached exactly the same things. There are some divisions when those of you who will want to study spirituality in its high levels, either in Agama or elsewhere, I hope you will get a very clear understanding of those levels. This is not a conference about that. And those things are extremely elevated. But here are a few quotes from chapter 1 and 3. Just a few sutras from the Shiva Sutra. Seeing how the author, Vasugupta, the first of the big authors, how he writes about what's happening when one is exploring this high consciousness. And he says, I'm, I'm, they are not in a line. There are a few sutras picked up from different parts in the text, which I have grouped here for you, like uh, to get a feeling. Some of these things I'll try to explain briefly, because they sound very esoteric. Some of them I will not explain too much. I will just let their poetic flavor talk directly to your intuition, talk directly to your subconscious mind. And he says, I'm starting with sutras. The one who enjoys the continuity of the fourth state through those other three states, the fourth state is the void, the shunya of the Buddhists. It's called turiya in the Indian yoga. So the one who either you are awake or in dream or so on, you are in samadhi, you are in the state of the void, in nirvikalpa. So the one who enjoys this four-state continuity through all the three stages is lord of the heroes. Lord of the heroes is an expression which means master of senses and sensorial energies, like being able to not be fooled by the five senses, being able to realize the illusion of the matrix and stay out like the one in the matrix, controlling the matrix. His will is the divine energy, Uma, the one perpetually virgin. So his will is the goddess. Like the will of Abhinava Gupta is not just the willpower of Abhinava Gupta. His will is the universal energy called Uma, which means his will is universal, irrepressible. From here comes the concept of omnipotence. When your will is Uma, which is the virgin, the virgin name of the goddess, the goddess as a virgin, the virgin energy, then what can your will do in this universe when your will is the cosmic energy? His body, Sharira in Sanskrit, is the entire perceptible world. Like, his body is everything that can be seen. His body is the universe. Very difficult to understand, right? It's an existential condition where one is not Tom, Dick and Harry. His will is the cosmic energy Uma. His body 
is the perceivable universe, world. By compenetration, by mixture, by merging, by laya, we call it, it's like the laya, yoga. By compenetration with a pure principle, which is Shiva, the consciousness, he obtains the energy of freedom. Because only spirit is 100% free. The only thing which is 100% free is what you could call God. In Kashmiri and Shaivism, we call him Shiva. The cosmic consciousness, the universal consciousness. That's the only thing which is above all the karma, all the chains, all the kanchukas, all the limitations. <coughs> his right discernment, Vitarka, like his discrimination, like, you know, understanding, being righteous, this yes, this no, his discrimination, his, dis his right discernment, is the knowledge of the Supreme Self. Only from the knowledge of the Supreme Self, one can have discrimination. That's why you can say that the Swami Shivananda has discrimination. There have been many yogis. There have been this plethora of yogis, Krishnamacharya and Iyengar and so on, who did a lot of this mechanical Hatha Yoga of the 20th century. They are not famed in yoga for having reached Atman. These are not considered enlightened yogis by Aurobindo, Shivananda, Satyananda. They are not in that league. They are in another category. And therefore, who can have discernment about what is right, for example, to teach in yoga, how to teach it, how to give spiritual teaching? Spiritual teaching can never be given by a person that has no knowledge of Atman. Only by empowerment can yoga teachers like in Agama, they can teach, but they teach by empowerment until they get their own connection with Atman, Brahman, Shiva, and then there, there comes the right discrimination, the right discernment. The beatitude of this world called Ananda, like the bliss, what this world calls bliss, is identical for him to the joy of Samadhi. The joy of the state of Samadhi is all the bliss of this world. What all the people together experience as happiness and bliss to the maximum and boil down in one central consciousness, in concept, that's the ecstasy or the joy of the state of Samadhi. That's why Samadhi is sometimes called ecstasy, because it has an ecstatic dimension to it. The compen by compenetration with the divine energy, because you are one with the mother, you are one with the cosmos, this perfect yogi can create, create at will the body. By the body it means the nature, anything it wants. Like, this is why people like Shivananda and Yogananda, they have done some amazing things. Because they had compenetration with Shakti. And in a certain way things are happening. Of course, not everything can happen all the time. Because there needs to be a surrender to the will of God. Not everybody in yoga walked on water, raised dead people from their graves, did I don't know what, because it was not required. The divine consciousness didn't want that to happen all the time. It happened 2,000 years ago with that guy called Jesus. 
And that was a big enough example for a while. It can't happen every day, all the time. It, it doesn't respect the rules of the game. So that's why many people say, well, well, if they can, why don't they do it? It's not about the fact that you can. It's also about the fact if it's required by the divine order, by the order of the universe, to happen in this moment. There is a beautiful, because I was talking about uh, <coughs> Borges and his uh, sand book, or whatever it's called in English, I read it in Romanian many years ago, and in his book there is a novel, a short novel, which is called Paracelsus's Rose, the Rose of Paracelsus. Paracelsus, a great magician, mage of the medieval time. And it's like this, that uh, a disciple wants to force Paracelsus to show him something. And he says, if you are a true alchemist, then I can burn this rose, calcinate it, turn it into ashes, and then you should just say some mantra or click your fingers and make it back into a rose. And he burns the rose without asking for permission or if Paracelsus wants to do it, and then keeps pushing on him to do it. And, of course, when Paracelsus is not doing it, he starts mocking Paracelsus, like, perhaps you are a false teacher, perhaps you are not the real thing. And he keeps on going like this until he gets disappointed, he stands up and leaves. And the novel is beautiful, because then after he leaves, Paracelsus looks at the ashes, says one word, and the rose is right there. Paracelsus could do it, but not in front of him. Because he had his tests to pass, he had his existence to fulfill, and Paracelsus was not supposed to burn his evolution, to take away the tests from him. He had to go, he, had, he was full of doubt, and Paracelsus was not born to remove his doubt. Jesus was born to remove some doubts, not to everybody. Even Jesus was hated by more than 50% of the people around him, apparently, because they voted for him to get crucified in favor of some zealot called Barabbas. No? So it's like even Jesus, who walked on water and raised the dead, didn't quite manage to remove people's doubts. Even when people said, yeah... Uh, it's like apparently he raised the dead man from the... But he did it with the devil's power. It doesn't count. It doesn't come from God. No? Like, how far do you have to go to convince all the monkeys? The gorillas remain gorillas. Even Jesus cannot make gorillas in not gorillas. No? So that's why I say... You know, uh, here, this, is, this statement is very strong because he says, by compenetration with Shakti, he can create at will the body of the universe, you know. Yeah, doesn't mean you are allowed to do it all the time. Everything is possible, but not everything is permitted. He can join the elements, separate the elements, and bring together everything. This is exactly the essence of the tantric magic, to join the elements, like when you put earth into water, air into fire, and so on. This is alchemy. This is the essence of the working with elements. Separate the elements. Bring, unify. There is a whole theory. I'm not going to comment on this. It's a beautiful theory of how different paranormal phenomena and things can be produced by just playing with the five elements. This is the mysticism or the alchemy of the five elements. 
Uh, again, we explain it elsewhere in Agama, but it's way too early and way too much to go into details here. By attaining the pure knowledge, the pure knowledge means the divine knowledge, one reaches lordship over the wheel of energies. The energies of God, like the cosmic powers, for example, are called the wheel of energies, like the spokes of a wheel. Kali, Tara, Sundari, different aspects. And the yogi who reaches that state of samadhi, one reaches lordship over the wheel of energies. It's a huge statement to say that a yogi like Ramakrishna could ask Kali to do whatever for whoever, whenever. Lordship over the wheel of energies. Like to be the lord of Kali, Tara, Sundari. Only the Supreme Self has this majesty in the universe. Only the Supreme Spirit has this privileged position to be above everything, beyond everything. Here is a different dimension. No, like it's a dimension which both tells us you are free, but it also tells us you can lordship over the wheel of energies, over all the energies of the universe. By compenetration with the great lake, this is a metaphor for God as a great lake, the undifferentiated supreme consciousness. So by union with that, he obtains the efficient power of all the mantras. In the tantric tradition of India and Tibet, if you master the mantras, you master everything, because everything is doable by mantras. Mantras are the supreme instrument, the supreme power. And the tantric text says, by having communion with the cosmic consciousness, one obtains the efficient power. It's called the mantra virya. Virya, like in Brahmacharya lecture, virya, efficiency, power, the mantra virya, the efficiency of all the mantras, which means, as consequence, a lot. And somewhere in the chapter 3, a simple sutra says, he becomes like Shiva. That's all. Such a source. He becomes like Shiva. Like, let's not uh, procrastinate. You know, let's not have idle talk. He becomes like Shiva. But he says a few things about that so you can understand, because otherwise it's too abstract. In the next strophe, in the next sutra, he says, for him, the activity of the body is religious vow. Religious vow means tapas, sadhana, practice. And he says, for a man who has reached that consciousness, the body activity, like if he, if he peels potatoes, if he washes the dishes, if he just walks through the garden, that's sadhana. Like a person at this level doesn't even need to practice. Because everything is practiced when you have the cosmic consciousness. Doing dishes is an exercise of yoga. So, Shiva Sutra says it's here for him, the activity of the body is tapasya or sadhana. Even if you pee, that's an activity of the body. You are actually doing a divine action. Because God pees. And that's sacred. That means something else. And it continues in the same rhythm. His conversation is recitation of mantras. That's why in the Indian tradition we have satsang. When the guru talks, it's like the guru recites mantras. Even if he says, dick and pussy and fuck, like some gurus, which I know do. 
It doesn't matter. The conversation of an enlightened being is like recitation of mantras. I could have sat here and said, why should I just talk words, 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 throw all the books in fire, give up all your knowledge, leave your knowledge at the entrance with your shoes, let's just meditate. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om, for two hours. That's what I did. The conversation of a being beyond a certain level of consciousness is japa. It has a divine effect because it motivates you. It awakens your soul. It shakes you out of your numbness. And this is what we are talking about. And he says further, his gift to the world is knowledge of the self. Like what did Jesus give to the world? Alms to the poor. What Jesus gave to the world is spirituality. Jesus constantly talked about God, going to God, being one with God, loving God, striving to be perfect, and all those things. That was what he constantly said. The fact that now and then he healed a leper was more to demonstrate that he was not a complete hoax. Like, if I can heal lepers and blinds, it means I know what I'm talking, right? Not all the gurus in history were allowed to do that by the requirements of the divine law of their time. For example, Abhinavagupta, who is considered to be a colossal master, he is not known to have healed any leopard, raised any dead, and the authors of his time, he said, probably he could have done, because he was a very great master. But Shiva did not come to Abhinavagupta and said, Now, I want you to walk on the dull lake so that everybody should believe you. And therefore, Abhinavagupta never walked on that lake because he didn't feel that the divine needed for him to do something exceptional. It was enough how he was. In the case of Jesus, please do not forget that the Greek world the Roman world, the Egyptian world, the Phoenician and all that Middle Eastern world, Babylonians and others, and the Jewish world, they were fucked up severely at the time when Jesus came. So Jesus didn't come in a paradise like Kashmir among spiritual pure people to teach a super elevated doctrine of spirituality. Jesus was parachuted in the middle of a war zone. And then his intervention to the world had to be very different from that of an Abhinavagupta. And thus, remember that the spiritual masters, many, many, Milarepa was pushed and pushed and pushed and to show something. And at the time of death, when they poisoned him, he was poisoned to death. And he showed a little bit of the horrible ordeal which he was enduring by the power of the will. And even then people did not believe and so on. It's a whole story. Read the life of Milarepa. You know, like he refused and refused and refused to. He said, when I did my training, I could materialize my body, dematerialize it into rainbow, go to the top of the universe, go to the bottom of it and so on. He said, but when it came to showing things, he procrastinated because he simply said, you don't need. If you don't feel like, don't do it. Don't listen to me. Just go. 
you know, I'm not in any need to convince anybody. So, the gift to the world of an Abhinava Gupta is not miracles or healings or building bridges or making a yoga school or the gift is the knowledge of the self, the, the real knowledge, the knowledge of Atman. And Shiva Sutra keeps on saying, he is shepherd of enslaved souls. Shepherd is Shiva Pashupati. That Shiva is the shepherd of the soul. As the Christians say, that Jesus is the good shepherd. And we are all sheep in the flock of Jesus. They say about every enlightened being, he is shepherd of the enslaved souls, for he is source of self-knowledge indeed. This is the function. That's why enlightened beings usually go towards becoming teachers because that's their function, to give the knowledge of the self and to shepherd the souls. Being established in the group of shaktis called the wheel of energies, he is indeed source of self-knowledge. Like all the energies which emanate from the Atman of an enlightened being, they are meant to reach to the center. They are connected to the center. They are not chaotic energies. They are energies which have a single purpose. The creation of the universe, says Shivasuda just is the unfoldment of his own power. Like a single man, and the creation of the universe is the unfoldment of his power. Like that man is like God. Feels, I created the universe. And either this is mental disease and megalomania, or it has a seed of truth in it. You realize that there is no way that these things are 50% right or something. It's right or it's not right. This is how it is with spirituality. <clears throat> and he says, the creation of the universe is the unfoldment of its own power and so are also the preservation and the resorption of the universe. Like all the three activities of Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva, creation, preservation and resorption of the universe are coming from Atman. They are coming from the center of the wheel of energies. But, concludes the third chapter in some places, not the last sutra, is somewhere in the middle, but the one who is still full of delusion is subjected to the power of karma. And thus we close the circle and we come back to karma in the end of this series of three satsangs because either one is above, or if not, one is under the power of karma. So, this is, I, I hope that with this lecture, I put the cherry on top of the cake, showing you if the condition of spiritual realization is desirable. Because, you know, you can have some stupid movie, and think about somebody who is a Christian saint, and think it's boring, it's nothing. Yes, like yes, some people live on the clouds and the angels are singing some boring music. They don't even allow Pink Floyd in hell, in paradise there. So it's like, you know, all this boring New Age music forever and ever sitting on a cloud and singing a harp. You know, it sounds like it's, you are the most dumb person in the world and it's that boring. The presentation which I did tonight was an understanding according to metaphysics of what really is spirit. How exalted is this condition? What's happening when you go beyond the human condition? 
and what's happening when you go way beyond the human condition. What is the cherry on top of the cake? What is the top of the mountain? What means to come back home? What means to be reunited with the ocean of cosmic consciousness? What does it give you access to? This is the meditation. This is the essence. If you liked these three satsangs about evolution, then sooner or later this year or another year, you should join the metaphysical workshop and perhaps the art of dying workshop because these are the workshops in which we give the clear picture of the world according to great yogis like Yogananda and others. That's where we give the methods which correspond to those stages and to that clear picture of the world. Um, in a certain way, this metaphysical knowledge, the satsangs which I gave these days, as well as workshops like the metaphysic and other, they are rounding up the knowledge which you get in the yoga courses. Because in the yoga courses we don't have time to speak much about this. We teach you with the Anabanda, we teach you the shoulder stand and the head stand, and we do the Udhyana Bandha and the shoulder stand and the head stand with you. Every day, in every class, again and again, making sure that you are doing it correctly, that you are not hurting yourself, that the energy is not running in some chaotic ways, that you got it, and that you practice it, and that you deepen it. And that's because, of course, ultimately, practice, 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 practice. That's the only thing which will give results, which will produce the actual results. But that, this technical thing that we teach in yoga is also surrounded by this metaphysical, philosophical, intellectual understanding, which when the human being hears, it produces an effect in the soul. Sri Aurobindo, who was a very conventional yogi and who invented the concept of Purna Yoga, integral yoga, like everything should be turned into a yoga. He said sometimes you sit on the terrace of a restaurant, you read a good spiritual book which shakes your soul to the root, to the core, and that's more valuable than if you did exactly the same time which you did the reading, if you did meditation or Hatha Yoga. Like sometimes the right spiritual knowledge makes miracles. Because it awakens a nostalgia it awakens some memories which are sleeping in your subconscious mind and it gives this motivation where you realize, oops, you know, I, I never thought about it that way. That's really something amazing. That's something that should be done. So that's why metaphysics, in our school at least, it has its part. It has its role and we advise people to understand this philosophical, metaphysical part of yoga, which is not just a sterile armchair philosophy, but it's a philosophy which is connected with Vudhyana Bandha, with headstand, with mantra meditation, with this, with that. So these things are organically there. This was the end of this um, series of three satsangs on the idea of evolution, karma, and spiritual realization. Thank you all for joining, and I will see you in the coming.